Hello and welcome to this uh, new podcast of the American Journal of Public Health. We are in Atlanta for the 2023 annual meeting of the American Public Health Association. And uh, I'm here with my co-moderator, uh, co-host of the podcast, my dear colleague, uh, Vicky Mays. And uh, today we are going to talk about war and public health. And we have two absolutely great experts on this issue, uh, Dr. Barry Levy and Dr. Bob Gould. So, uh, Barry and Bob, please introduce yourself because we have also a strictly audio sure, uh, version. Understood. And they may think okay. you are me because <laughs> we have the same accent. <laughs> well, uh, so I'm, I'm pleased to be with you today. Uh, my name is Barry Levy. I'm a physician and epidemiologist. I'm a past president of the American Public Health Association. I'm affiliated with Tufts University School of Medicine. I'm a member of the Peace Caucus, and I'm the author of a relatively recent book entitled mm -hmm. From Hard to Hope, Recognizing and Preventing the Health Impacts of War. Thank you. Bob? And I'm uh, Bob Gould. I worked for 30 years as a pathologist in Kaiser, and after retiring from that for the last decade, I've been a professor at uh, UCSF in San Francisco, where I work within the program on reproductive health and the environment. I also uh, am president of San Francisco Bay Physicians for Social Responsibility, and as well, uh, regional vice president for North America of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. And for many years, I've been chairperson of the Peace Caucus and APHA. Great. So let's go straight into the core I of agree, the problem. Sure. And uh, I think when we think of war and health, we first think in terms of medicine. Mm -hmm. You know, the doctors, the, the wounded, the, the deaths, etc. Mm -hmm. So we'd like to understand what is the specific role and aspect and issues that are public health different from medicine. Yes, well, to start with, uh, one only needs to look at what actually happens in terms of the health consequences of war. What gets the headlines and so much of the attention are explosive weapons, uh, bomb blasts, bullets, missiles, and so forth, which indeed kill and injure large number of people. But even greater numbers of people are affected, killed, injured, uh, otherwise affected by the indirect health effects of war, many of which are very tied in with uh, public health. These include malnutrition, communicable diseases, exacerbation of underlying non-communicable diseases like heart disease and lung disease, chronic lung disease, maternal and infant disorders, and mental and behavioral disorders. And largely as a result of forced displacement, which occurs frequently, typically during war, sometimes, of course, millions of people forcibly displaced, as we're seeing in some of the current uh, wars, but also due to direct attacks on, on civilian infrastructure. What do I mean by infrastructure? Food supply, water supply, health care facilities and health workers, um, and, and shelter, communication, transportation. But these indirect uh, impacts of war, many of which are very much intertwined with public health, um, don't get the headlines, don't get the attention that, that is so necessary. And so from a preventive point of view, there are lots of things that could be done to minimize and maybe ultimately eliminate uh, all these effects of war, but particularly I'm, I'm focusing right now on the indirect effects which get so little attention. Bob, do you want to? 
Let me, I want to follow sure, up sure. on that a little bit because I want to make sure people understand like how cardiovascular disease comes, you know, from, you know, individuals who have been in the war. Can you give, and childhood diseases, can you sure. talk a little bit more about sure. that? Yeah, yeah. So let me talk about first the chronic disease and then the childhood right. diseases. So for example, I'll give you three examples, uh, coronary artery disease, chronic lung disease like asthma or chronic obstructive uh. pulmonary disease or diabetes, okay? So these are all chronic conditions. In our country, in a peaceful times, uh, for most people, not all of them, but most people who have these diseases are getting adequate medicines to mm -hmm. manage those diseases. They are chronic diseases. They may ultimately disable or kill them, but we're able to manage them in our mm -hmm. healthcare system. That management depends on ongoing medical care, but also access to medications. And so during wartime, and this has been shown in, the, in Russia's war in Ukraine, for example, the World Health Organization did a survey last year. They found that half the people had a barrier to getting ongoing primary care. Oh, okay. Almost a quarter of the people, and higher in regions where Russia was occupying, uh, that a quarter or more of the population couldn't get access to drugs for hypertension. Without those drugs, people get stroke and heart right. attack, or at least they're at increased risk for that. Uh, chronic uh, lung disease, people are... Uh, who have asthma are dependent on ongoing medications. Without those medications, they get asthma attacks and they even die. Uh, people who are dependent on insulin, for example, diabetics, uh, without that insulin on a daily basis, they could lapse into diabetic coma or develop other uh, complications. So th these things are, in a sense, below the radar, at least mm -hmm. of, the, of the public media and, and even the, uh, the social media, of the problems that are occurring. And no one's, during war, surveillance systems break down, you know, so much of the public health infrastructure breaks down that um, we don't have good data on, on these, sometimes even after the war mm -hmm. uh, is over. Mm -hmm. And with regard to childhood, you know, one of the things that breaks down, of course, is immunization. Uh. And um, take, a, again, Ukraine as an example. They had a large outbreak of measles about five years ago, lots and lots of cases. They improved their immunization rates, but their immunization rates are now starting to decline, measles immunization. Highly contagious disease in a population affected by war, many children malnourished, not effectively immunized. We're going to see, unfortunately, measles outbreaks, which, which is a, a killer disease for, for young children who are not immunized. So Very that, helpful to get yeah, those explanations. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. You know, you know yeah, I would also just add to what Barry is saying is that we're beginning to see, obviously, we're focusing a lot on the casualties that are occurring now in, in Gaza, where over you know, 10,000 people have been killed, many women and children. But this can really be the tip of the iceberg with all the systems breaking down from not getting power, not having clean water. So many of the diseases that Barry's talking about that are already manifesting themselves, the breakdown of systems in Ukraine equally apply in, in what's unfolding in Gaza now, which mm -hmm. is why that's a great concern to us as well. No, I was just going to pick up on what Bob was saying, what you were asking about earlier, you know, what is the role of public health? But in some ways, the role of the, and the potential roles of public health with regard to war are similar to the roles that we in public health play in so many other situations. Education, research and documentation of problems, uh, public awareness raising, uh, development of policies or supporting existing policies, uh, and, and public health practice. And, and given the multiplicity of effects of war, even, even though we're here in the United States and you know, we're se separated by two large oceans from much of the rest of the world and most of the war wars in the world, um, but we're still feeling the effects right here in our own country. Refugees, military personnel, other people who are affected, uh, even by wars where they you know, survived a war 20 or 30 years ago, 
they're still feeling the, the public health effects of those wars. But, but imagine uh, you are a student in the School of Public Health here in the United States. You, you, you feel motivated. Can you give practical examples of uh, what do prof health, public health professionals in those war arenas? Do you want to start, Bob, on that? Or? Well, uh, let me even back up from that situation because what do public health professionals know about war? And I would also say, what is the role of preventing those things from unfolding that they have the real difficulty dealing with? I mean, I, I was very fortunate when I started medical school. I had one of our giants of public health, Victor Seidel, who's co-edited with Barry War in Public Health, Terrorism and Public Health, to really put an emphasis and understand primary prevention in these cases. And a lot of this really stemmed from the work of Vic and many others who in 1962 dealing with, well, you know, how do, how do physicians or public health professionals say respond to a nuclear war, which remains an ever-present danger for us with Ukraine and in other situations around the world, and, and to confront the fact that no matter how, how much you can organize or teach physicians to treat the burns or provide the transfusions, really it would overwhelm healthcare systems. And that's why Vic and uh, Bernard Lown and many others had uh, pioneered in the 1962 New England Journal of Medicine about thermonuclear war, how we were completely unprepared for it. And that propelled a consciousness among physicians and public health people that we needed to do everything that we could to prevent such conflicts from happening. That approach has certainly been very central to the work of Physicians for Social Responsibility and the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War to this day, that, that we need to really be able to transmit the need to prevent such conflicts. And unfortunately, more directly getting to your question, is that what we find is that there's really not the inculcation within public health schools. One of our colleagues, Shelley White, over a decade ago had an article in the American Journal of Public Health, did a survey of public health curriculum around the country, and I think it was, I don't know, remember if I have the numbers exactly right, but it was about surveying 10,000 courses and less than 10 had anything to do uh, about war. We try to make up for that now in voluntary efforts in our own schools, like I do at UCSF and Stanford and such, but we really need to bring these concepts to core public health curriculum so people are prepared to prevent these conflicts from happening and to really understand where we need to redirect our budgets to provide for more core public health programs and such. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree. And and in response to your question, I can think of three things that, for example, uh, medical students, nursing students, public health students can do. One is to find a faculty member, either in their own school or across the country, or even across the world. Now, now, nowadays, it's so easy with Zoom and other modalities to, uh, even if there isn't a faculty member at one's institution, you, you can find one uh, numerous ways. So find somebody who uh, could serve as a mentor or advisor or perhaps include you in a research project or some other ongoing activity. Um, a, a second is to uh, join up, become a member of, or learn about at least, uh, the work of various organizations. These range from Physicians for Social Responsibility, Physicians for Human Rights, some of which have, if not chapters, active participants in various uh, schools of public health and other uh, 
health professional schools. Uh, so one is find, the, find a, a faculty member, two is uh, join up with an organization and get engaged. Uh, starting with the American Public Health Association, there are many uh, aspects of our own organization, the International Health Section, uh, the, the Peace Caucus, of which Bob is, is the uh, director and which I've been a member for, for a long time. Uh, these are avenues in which people could participate, not only at the annual meeting, uh, but, but throughout the, work, throughout the, the, the uh, year. A third way that students, and I know there are a lot of enthusiastic students who are very much engaged in these issues, um, many students now are beginning to form you know, interest groups of their own at various uh, educational institutions, sometimes guided by faculty members, sometimes guided by a contact maybe from the Peace Caucus or elsewhere in APHA, uh, but, but sometimes student you know, students' field initiatives uh, can go a long way towards um, uh, building uh, more and more interest. In fact, those initiatives may lead to more and more courses, as Bob describes, uh, in places like schools of public health. Now, people sometimes say, well, you can also volunteer and go over and, and work in a, in a refugee camp, uh, maybe in, in uh, Gaza or in somewhere in, in Europe that's taking Ukrainian refugees and so forth. Um, theoretically, that's, that's certainly possible. But one of the problems that sometimes occurs is that people without adequate training, without prior experience in those kinds of situations, uh, go over and, in fact, are not prepared and are, are, you know, may not be really contributing in that kind of role. So um, there's a lot of good intentions in people who want to, you know, get on the next plane and go help out somewhere, but it, it really takes somebody with, you know, some experience and background, um, perhaps from some courses or other experiences before you just go, go over there. Barry, I want to kind of connect up to something you said in the beginning about being an epidemiologist and talk a little bit about research. One of the things that we've learned from, um, you know, 9-11 is the extent to which being in that disaster, people had these chronic diseases later. Right. And we only learned it because we got some people to be in um, cohort studies. You right. know? And so I, I guess I want to ask the question, should we be thinking about enrolling people so that we can learn more and more about what you're talking about, those indirect yeah, um, kind absolutely. of causes. What kinds of things would you suggest yeah, that yeah. researchers start thinking about sure, now? Sure. Well, a couple of things. One is that uh, just given the nature of war, the fact that many people are displaced and sometimes permanently displaced as a result of war, um, and that a lot of the basic infrastructure for public health, for example, is destroyed during war, mm -hmm. that it's, it's difficult to put together a cohort study uh, like we might in the United States with a group of workers, for example. So, but there are other valid means of mm -hmm. doing uh, ongoing studies, uh, retrospective studies, to identify not only mortality, but as you're asking, to, to try to identify these in, uh, indirect effects of war. So one is going in and doing uh, cross-sectional studies, um, even during war, okay, because those kinds of studies help to guide humanitarian assistance, but also doing uh, cross-sectional studies, field studies, uh, immediately after war to assess populations and indeed to look at these indirect health effects, as, as you're asking about. Uh, another is that there's been systematic studies, for example, about the Iraq war. I know some of these have been controversial and so forth, mm -hmm. but people doing systematic, very well-designed um, epidemiological studies, uh, systematically, um, for example, in Iraq, breaking down the country by uh, the equivalent of states or provinces, uh, then randomly 
sampling uh, neighborhoods and houses within those neighborhoods, conducting interviews, working closely with local staff, and uh, you know, it's really a sort of a bottom-up study, but designed in part by people in Iraq working with uh, people from the United States and elsewhere. So there are ways of, of studying uh, these situations systematically with valid epidemiological designs uh, that have already been developed. They need to be improved, but there are, are valid ways of doing this epidemiologically to, to try to better uh, define uh, uh, these uh, indirect effects. And I, I would also just add, while we're awaiting those studies, which are very important and have certainly presented them when we've had them within the decades of, of programs here in, at APHA by dint of the Peace Caucus, we've also relied on the impacted communities and particularly uh, have had numerous panels over the years of veterans who reflect on the experience from the, whether they be the veterans against the Vietnam War all the way up through the veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan who've been able to talk in a very heartfelt way what the impacts of things like Agent Orange have been on their own health, let alone those in Southeast Asia, and extending forward towards exposure to depleted uranium or uh, you know things that have been implicated, various toxic agents and Gulf War syndrome, the experience of veterans with the burn pits in, in mm -hmm. Afghanistan that has been very deleterious to their health as well as Afghanis. So we try to combine the best of those type of studies to get out the information to the public health community here. Yeah, I would like to bring the conversation, uh, you know, to change a little bit the perspective. Sure. And uh, because we've been talking about situation of war. Right. But uh, I'd like to move to how can we prevent wars right. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the role of public health. Yes. And so could you tell us more about what, you know, the the importance of public health, sure. its development, its reach for universal uh, care, equity, right. etc., yes. is a factor that can uh, prevent wars. Sure, sure. Well, and, and I think it's, I'm so glad you raised the question because we need to be thinking uh, about war as a preventable public health problem. That's not only a public health problem, but uh, so one way of thinking about this, um, uh, you might say uh, schematically, or, or in, is to think about three uh, sets of activities that can be used to, and have been used to prevent war. Okay. One is resolving disputes and conflicts, which of course occur all the time among nations and, and within nations. Most wars, by the way, are civil wars within countries. But one is preventing conflicts and disputes from becoming violent, okay? And there's a lot of public health measures that, that have been used in, in other settings uh, to, um, uh, to, to diffuse conflicts before they become violent. So that's one thing. A second thing is addressing the underlying causes, thinking in public health terms, the upstream causes of, of war. And not only the upstream causes, but the the upstream causes above those upstream causes, so to speak. But For example, you have to give examples. Yeah, no, sure, absolutely. Let me get so so some of the upstream causes of war, the underlying weather metaphor you like, but you know vast socioeconomic disparities in population, abject poverty, where sometimes people fight because uh, their life is so bad that they they don't see any. They see more to be gained, perhaps by by uh, trying to bring down the government or whatever. So socioeconomic disparities. Militarism and a military culture, and and the arms that go along with that, uh, and and um, you know we in the United States, we as a country provide arms 
directly or indirectly to so many other countries around the world that use those arms uh, to, to resolve conflicts. And we know that from a public health perspective, that's not the best way to resolve conflicts. Environmental stress, you know, climate change is now at least contributing, uh, and I know this is controversial somewhat, but for example, there was a major drought in the four years before the civil war in Syria began in 2011. There was a major drought throughout the Middle East, the most severe drought in, in perhaps 100 years, part of which we believe, at least part of which, was due to climate change. This led to farmers abandoning their farms, became desert land. They went to the cities, about a million of them. It, could, it added to the existing uh, political instability. It did not cause the Syrian civil war, which probably would have happened without climate change, without the drought, but it was certainly a contributing factor for these million people uh, you know, moving in, uh, adding to the political instability. And, and the final thing is building an infrastructure for peace. You know, once About half the wars in the world are sort of like recidivism. That is, they're, they're, they're wars that are being fought in the same countries, sometimes among the same actors, who just fought a war five years before or 10 years before. So an important thing about prevention of future wars is to uh, adequately resolve the wars that have already taken place. That means rehabilitating individuals, rehabilitating communities, truth and reconciliation commissions, building a strong um, uh, civil society, the rule of law, and importantly, having these, uh, this building of peace come from the grassroots up rather than to be imposed by uh, the, the UN or Washington or whoever else, and involving women in the peace process. It's been shown that when women are involved, really involved in the peace process, there's higher, much higher likelihood of sustainable peace. And so, you know, one way, again, of thinking about the prevention of war is prevent conflicts becoming violent addressing the underlying causes, and third is building the infrastructure for peace. And I think that your points about climate are so, are so particularly well taken. I mean, it's estimated that we're going to have massive population displacement, whether it be due to rising sea levels or droughts that are going to make places inhabitable and not be able to grow food. That's going to have millions of people on the march, tens of millions of people, really, and that's going to inevitably have conflict in terms of people having to be displaced and moving into other areas where people can pick up on ethnic differences to provoke warfare that's happening already around the world. So, and, you know, I mean, even to think about the current situation of, of uh, food scarcity in Africa, the conf ongoing conflict in Ukraine, and in particular, the dispersal of landmines and cluster munitions on the breadbasket of Europe is going to have profound impacts in terms of health, not only in Ukraine, not being able to grow food, but even being able to provide it to the rest of the world that's increasingly under climate stress. I still want to get a sense of the how. Yeah. I mean, I can hear the what. So um, put yourself in my place. I've got a class of 20, you know, um, students. Is it what I teach them? Is it what they strive to go out and do as part of the um, exposure that we give them mm -hmm. in the kind of practice side? Mm -hmm. Is it the research that we direct? Just yeah. well, the yeah. how. So, so uh, let me talk about it in, in, in two respects and then okay. ask Bob if he would add to whatever I say. But, but uh, so one is, is, you know, the technical skills. How do you do the kinds of epidemiological studies? How do you do... Uh, health education that's culturally appropriate in in a post-war situation. How do um, how do uh, you try to build up 
the public health activities after a war has taken place. So I mean, there's some specific skills and so forth, okay? But there's also public health values. And you know, one of the things I'm concerned, I know Bob is concerned about, is how we've sometimes lost track of the, of the true values of public health. The, 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 you know, our, shared, our shared humanity, the dignity, you know, uh, respect for human dignity, um, focus on prevention, I mean, the basic core public health values. So I'll give you a real life situation. A month ago, when uh, the, the um, uh, Hamas raid into Israel occurred and then Israel's response with bombing, et cetera, occurred, uh, I got on the phone with Bob and uh, Patrice Sutton, who are the basically the, the director and the program director of the Peace Caucus, and I asked, what can we do, okay? And we talked for a while, and we talked with other colleagues, and ultimately, out of that discussion, uh, over about two weeks, uh, came an ex a, a, what we call a, a call to immediate action for, to health professionals uh, with regard to Israel and, and Gaza. And, and it was an expression, um, without necessarily getting into all the details of what took place or who's right or who's wrong. You know, somebody once said, Bertrand Russell once said, war does not determine who is right, it only determines who is left. And that's a sad commentary on war. But So the, 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 what we tried to put on paper and, and over the internet is this call to action. We developed this call to action, which has five points which express public health values. One is end the, the violence and ensure security for for civilians, and the violence against civilians. Second is release the hostages. Third is uh, make sure you're um, protecting healthcare and uh, healthcare workers, healthcare facilities. Uh, fourth is uh, ensure that humanitarian assistance is provided. And fifth is to begin the process, the long process, but to begin the process of, of building a sustainable peace guided by human rights and justice, okay? Now, those are public health uh, principles. We argued among ourselves, you know, we're saying, this is sort of motherhood and apple pie, okay? But it's an expression, you know, what, what can we teach our students? We can teach our students these values. We make sure they're imbued with these values so that perhaps at some later time, they confront this, a similar situation in which th they're trying to discover, you know, trying to find out what they can do. And at a minimum, they may be able, as we, attempted to do and did do, uh, express our values, our public health values by the statement. The statement now has been signed by over 400 individuals, over 20 organizations globally, and many more are signing on. So I'm using this just as an example, uh, but, but this is a way that people in public health can not only do epidemiologic studies and do all the other things we do concretely in public health and work to preventing war, but to express our, our our, uh, starting with our solidarity with health and, and uh, medical care and public health workers in war zones and those who are directly affected, but also to more generally express our, our public health values. I would like to build on, on uh, uh, Bob's comment about migration, because migration uh, following a war is how also the war consequences come to our door. And the immigrants are with us. Yeah. We are public health people. And so we know that public health is allergic to any form of exclusion. And so those are human beings. They must be integrated. How do you explain that whether people are immigrants, undocumented, migrants, etc., they should all be treated the same way by the public health system? In, in terms of immigrants coming to the United yeah, States yeah, or otherwise, example, I mean, I think they need to be treated with dignity as human beings, and we need to understand what are the conditions that drive them. So again, 
you know, we, I think we need just immigration policy. I mean, I certainly reflect on my own background of, uh, you know, my family surviving, those who survived the Holocaust, and the problems when people couldn't migrate to the U.S. for safety and instead perished in concentration camps. And a lot of these things are driving immigration to the United States from Central and, and you know, South, South America, partly due to climate stressors, partly due to uh, dictatorships and violations of human rights that drive people to have to leave for their own survival. I think we've unfortunately closed our doors and manipulated for political reasons the differences between people. People are going to come and take your jobs or whatever the usual competitive. This is not just something that's the United States experience. It's going on certainly in Europe in terms of people being driven from Africa because of similar oftentimes climate-driven situations leading to their being uprooted. So I think we need to have, I mean, so, sort of echoing what Barry was saying as ba basic principles is to look at the common humanity in people and realize that we all have a stake. And particularly at times when we're going through such climate emergencies and threats of warfare that are, are building up, I think we need to be anticipatory of this and to be building the structures to be able to welcome people and integrate them. Certainly as regards healthcare, the exclusion of immigrant populations from healthcare in our country is only going to be a reservoir of potential disease, right? Because, you know, people get their diseases, they get their tuberculosis, which is not being treated, they go into prisons and they are in crowded conditions. I think we have to have a lot of forethought in preventing them. Absolutely. Let me just follow up on that because it's there's values and then there's where, you know, rubber meets the road here. And we see our mayors. I'm, you know, I'm in Los Angeles. I'm, you know, at mm -hmm. UCLA. We see our mayors, um, you know, kind of at their wits' end because we have people coming in, and then we have people in those cities who have already not had, you know, equitable access. So, give me a sense of how does public health play a key role in negotiating access for all. Well, I, I, w I would start that, and, and it probably gets to some of the issues we were talking about. What are people thinking about is the range of possible solutions. So if you get into a zero-sum situation that someone's going to come here, I'm going to have less health care, I'm going to have less housing because they're increasing the demand, we could also argue that, gee, you know, if you didn't, uh, if you took a significant cut, for example, out of the military budget the nuclear weapons budget, you could provide those resources for people so you wouldn't have people competing in that way. I mean, we are now embarked on a, on a program of over 30 years to spend four to six million dollars every hour to modernize our nuclear weapons arsenal, to make those weapons that could take the world out in a moment even more lethal than they are. And that's why a lot of people are saying, how can it be that we're spending $850 billion a year on a military budget? when we have such crying needs to deal with climate change, to deal with providing the basic services for people, in a country where there's still tens of millions of people who don't have adequate health care before the immigrants even come here. So I think we need to have city officials and public health officials step out of the box and question those assumptions that have driven the situation where politicians could sort of manipulate, manipulate people and pit one unfortunate population against another. Yeah, let me, let me just yeah. uh, if and, and build on. Uh, uh, oh, okay, sure. Is, is um, uh, 
two examples that we touched on briefly before, and those are measles and tubercul tuberculosis. And, and the, but they're, they're examples of a much larger issue, and that is to the extent that people come into this country from, from, because of climate change, because of, of war situations, many other situations where people are persecuted, uh, seeking asylum here or coming here as, as refugees, if they if they are not immunized against measles, they're likely more likely to to develop measles, okay, and and indeed spread it to others, and and perhaps even create large uh, outbreaks or contribute to it. Another is tuberculosis. To the extent that people are not uh, tuberculosis is not detected, not treated adequately, and in fact, treatment of course involves often months of treatment, often supervised uh, treatment, so that people make sure you know that that the medications are taken. To the extent that that is not done. We're, 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 you know, sowing the seeds of more disease, more ill health in our in our you know communities throughout the country. So it's in our enlightened health in, interests and, and our enlightened humanitarian interests, you might say, to welcome immigrants into this country. We're a nation of immigrants, but to do so in a way that protects the public health, their health, but everybody's health in the process. Absolutely, and uh, I want to thank you both of you because. I've learned a lot from this half an hour that we spent together, and, and specifically on the fact that war is not limited to the war area, but it's, it's a global issue, and we have to address it as a global issue. Yeah. I also think that something that is, we've been developing in the journal for many years, mm -hmm. which we call the public health dialogue or finding common ground, yeah. is a way also of preparing this notion of trying to uh, prevent explosions mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. try to work together in the action. Yes. And that uh, is maybe also contributing to preventing more. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I just want to say kind of as our final wrap-up, you know, and uh, this builds on something that, Bob, you said about our veterans. One of the things we've seen is the cost to us in terms of their oh, mental yeah. health. And so, you know, as we're in these conflictual situations, we really need to think about how do we keep people whole and healthy. Yeah. And part of that also is their mental health as well. Yeah. Because when you're not doing well there, you're not as productive and participatory right. in society and can't think through and grasp some of these right. values that you're mm -hmm. talking about. Yeah, so absolutely. I do like your comments about kind of the indirect consequences that come on from these conflicts oh, right. and I think that's one that you know over time we really have to grapple with yeah. so I want to thank you for the things that you've talked about because I think that it leaves insights to people and hopefully some hope as to you know I know I get asked and I'm sure you do as well I want to do something right right and so uh, yeah. thank you for helping us help people to understand yeah. there are some things to do. Yeah, thanks for having us, and thanks, thanks yeah. for what you're doing at the Journal in terms of including these issues. Appreciate right. it very much. It's a big deal. Thank you very much, and I'm turning to our audience now. We were here with Barry Levy and Bob Gould and my good friend and uh, colleague, Vicky Mays. I'm myself, Alfredo Morabia, uh, talking about war and public health from Atlanta at the 2023 uh, annual meeting of the American Public Health Association. Thank you so much for watching and listening.